0: This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rolheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FrancisFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org, that's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen About Culture and Faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian Spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director Director of the Center for Spirituality and Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been?
1: Well, I'm doing better now, but as I shared with the two of you before we got started, I'm just coming off a little bout of the flu, so warning to everybody to get your... And it was kind of a doozy, so it's good to be back among the walking and living and eating again. We're also having some weather here in Chicago, so my lights were just flickering, but I'm all on battery pack and backup here, so hopefully we'll be able to get through the recording. But otherwise, fall is here in Chicago, and we're enjoying some of that weather. The kids and I went to a pumpkin farm in Wisconsin last weekend, which was fun, on one of the days that I felt a little bit better. And things are busy at NCR, as usual. We've got a lot of people traveling and things we're preparing for in terms of coverage of things coming up this fall. So never a dull moment. But how have you been doing, Dan?
2: Doing well. We're hitting the middle of the semester here at St. Mary's, as I'm sure many schools are experiencing themselves. And so that's both a blessing and a curse. The curse is the work is piling up and exams and papers and those sorts of things are happening. And so there's a certain low-grade anxiety that is throughout the community. But the good news is we have fall break coming up very soon. So there's a little bit of a breather, a little bit of a reset. At least that's what I'm telling myself that's going to be. But other than that, it's been a good two weeks since we've last talked. I'm glad to hear you're on the mend and feeling better. Knock on wood, haven't come down with whatever that bug was, but... I have been on the road. We had the celebration of the inauguration of the new president, Jeff Gingrich of St. Bonaventure University and a board meeting before that. And then I was in San Francisco for the Feast of St. Francis to give a lecture. And there was a happy hour afterwards at a local bar in downtown San Francisco. And I saw a bunch of good friends and people I haven't seen in a long time and made connections. And a lot of folks who were there shared that they listened to the podcast. So a shout out to all of you in the Bay Area. I was then in Detroit for a little bit to give a lecture at Madonna University, a a Felician Franciscan University in Detroit, and uh, likewise heard lots of good things about the podcast. So shout out to my friends in the greater Detroit area. And uh, yeah,
0: here we are back on, on the air, as they say. And so, David, what have you been up to? Well, first of all, I also want to say, Heidi, that I'm glad that you're feeling better and sorry that you were sick. I'm doing pretty well. I am on fall break right now, and so I have been making the most of that by catching up with some writing and some house cleaning. My wife and I were saying that, you know, there's this spring cleaning tradition, but we also like the idea of doing a kind of fall cleaning to get ready for the dark months of winter. So we've been doing a lot of that. But from the writing end, I had a real breakthrough over the last couple of days. Twenty years ago, I wrote my master's thesis under Walter Brueggemann on a Jewish philosopher by the name of Franz Rosenzweig. And this week, I've kind of done a deep dive back into the thinking of Franz Rosenzweig, and I was delighted to discover that one of the pages that I concentrated on in my master's thesis, there's a term there that Rosenzweig uses. He uses the term tsniot, which is a Hebrew term which we oftentimes translate as modesty. I had completely passed over that. When I wrote my thesis 20 years ago, but in returning to that and diving back in, I listened to some commentators sort of expand on how Rosenzweig is using this idea of modesty and realized that it fits really well into the projects that I'm working on now the book for Yale and some other projects as well. And so now suddenly I have this wealth of information to bring into those projects as I'm completing them. I just feel like Franz Rosenzweig has been looking after me now for more than two decades and I feel very blessed by that. So in terms of the puzzle pieces fitting together, this was a good week for all of that. And I'm enjoying very much the change in weather. I think I've mentioned to you both that fall is my favorite season. So I've really been enjoying the fact that I can wear layers and sweaters and all of that stuff. So I'm doing well.
1: David, you're so funny. Some people go leaf peeping on their fall break and you dig into your master or your PhD dissertation. That's
0: true. I'm a nerd. Yes. But I also like I also like the changing of seasons and the leaves and all of that. So going out and having a chance to walk through that has been wonderful too. And Dan, have you been running? We had the Chicago Marathon. Did you participate in that or have you been doing any other no. races lately?
2: No, no, no. I, I have been running a little bit. The, the traveling makes that a little bit more tricky than And when I'm embracing my more monastic stability, as an itinerant from the Franciscan tradition, I'm more likely on the move. But I do have to say, I'm I'm also a fall person. I really do like, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, our falls. I love seeing the leaves change. I love the cool weathers. I like the dark mornings. I I actually don't like when we switch out of daylight savings time because we have these brighter mornings and darker evenings. I like to run in the dark in the morning. So I'd prefer to stay on that timeline, but that's a tangent here. No no Chicago marathon for me this year, and no one in kind of my immediate circle either. My brother ran last year, and I was in Chicago to cheer him on with my sister-in-law and some friends. My brother did happen to run a different marathon in New York State in the last few weeks, and it's got me thinking about how since the pandemic, I haven't run at that distance. So maybe 2023, I need to get back on that marathon circuit. So thanks for the encouragement indirectly there, David.
0: Well, I'll also say Some projects I've been working on recently have involved some podcasts for some other Catholic organizations. So I'm helping out right now Sister Julia Walsh, who's a Franciscan Sister of Perpetual Adoration. She's about to launch the next season of the Messy Jesus Business podcast. And so if you're looking for something to listen to, I want to recommend that. But also, I'm happy to say that I've been working with the Paulist Fathers on the Deacons podcast. I think they call it Deacons Pod. And Heidi, you were a guest on that recently. And I just, I was so glad to see that connection be made as well.
1: I was, and it was so fun to talk with the uh, the three hosts of that podcast. And I appreciate you making the connection. We can maybe share with our followers that link when it comes out. I think it'll be after this episode of Francis Effect comes out. But yeah, it was a great long-ranging conversation about all kinds of things. <laughs>
0: And as for this episode today, we're going to tackle three topics. We're going to be looking at the anniversary of Vatican II. We're going to be looking ahead to the 2022 midterm elections. And we'll be checking in about what pop culture we have been consuming lately. All that's coming up on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Horan and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On Tuesday, October 11th, Pope Francis celebrated a special Mass marking the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council. October 11th is also the feast day of Pope John Twenty-Third, who inaugurated the 21st Ecumenical Council of the Catholic Church that we now know as Vatican II. From October of 1962 to December of 1965, more than 2,000 bishops and thousands of believers, auditors, sisters, and laypeople attended a series of meetings at the Vatican. In the end, a total of 16 documents came out of the Council on everything from liturgy to ecumenism to how the Church should operate in the modern world. Father James Martin shared on social media on Tuesday a summary of the legacy of Vatican II, quoting from the late church historian John O'Malley. He said the council had the church moving from, quote, commands to invitations, from laws to ideals, from definition to mystery, from threats to persuasion, from coercion to conscience, from monologue to dialogue, from ruling to serving, from withdrawn to integrated, from vertical to horizontal, from exclusion to inclusion, from hostility to friendship, from rivalry to partnership, from suspicion to trust, from static to ongoing, from passive acceptances to active engagement, from fault finding to appreciation, from prescriptive to principles, from behavior modification to inner appropriation. Yet today... The Council has become a flashpoint in the culture wars, with some Catholics either opposing the Council and its reforms outright, while others indirectly question it by rejecting some of Pope Francis's reforms, many of which come from his emphasis on the Council. In his homily at the Mass marking the anniversary, Francis made a plea for the Church to, quote, overcome all polarization and preserve our communion, unquote, chastising both the right and the left for preferring to, quote, cheer on their own party rather than being servants of all, unquote. Heidi, what has been the reaction to Pope Francis's homily this week, and why is the anniversary of the council something Catholics should be noting today?
1: Well, first I want to say that that quote from John O'Malley, I just love it. It, I feel like it really summarizes everything that the council was and continues to be, and it's from his very excellent book, What Happened at Vatican II. And I, I thank Father Martin for sharing that so that I could steal it for the podcast. I was born in the middle of the council. And I've read that Pope Francis is the first pope who was ordained after the Second Vatican Council. So I think for both of us and for so many Catholics in the church, Vatican II shapes not only what the church was back then or what it was in the immediate aftermath in the 60s and 70s, but it's really still shaping what the church is and can be. There was a lot of reaction to the Pope's homily. We had a report about it from our Vatican correspondent, Chris White, and I thought that his words were strong. Just the fact that he chose to do this anniversary mass says something, and then that he chose to address the polarization directly and head on also made a strong point. And, you know, while the Pope went out of his way to mention both the left and the right as sometimes misusing or misinterpreting the Council, it's clear today that the majority of the resistance to Vatican II is coming from the right, not from the left. So it's interesting to me. I'll just raise two reactions that I saw and then see what you guys think. The EWTN-owned newspaper, The Register, ran a column that called the anniversary celebration backwardist, saying that the Pope and his supporters want to go back to the immediate aftermath of the Council, the 1960s and the 70s, when this columnist was arguing that really the JP2 years, the years of Pope John Paul II, were more formative for where we are today. They believe, this columnist believes it was a time of stabilizing the Church after what he called a decade of turmoil. And then probably more people saw the the piece in the New York Times by columnist Russ Douthat, who titled his about how Catholics became prisoners of Vatican II and he was raising similar concerns. I happen to disagree with both of those, and I'm wondering what you guys think as well.
2: So I read Ross Douthat's column this morning at about six o'clock. I was up having a cup of coffee and doing my usual routine of looking at the news. I sometimes question whether that's a good idea, because it could just start the day with the news, or should I be doing something else? Maybe praying a little bit longer before opening that laptop. But I'm with you, Heidi, I unsurprisingly to listeners. I mean, I was thinking about it, in fact, after I read his column, and I realized that column headlines are decided large, largely by editors and by copy editors, and the Times has a habit of changing the headlines throughout the day. So I don't know if he himself coined that prisoner thing or pulled it for the headline, though he does make that reference in the text itself. I had this thought in the immediate kind of afterward of reading that where I was thinking about what. Ross and I have in common what we have different. I mean, there are some things that are actually very similar between us. We're roughly the same age. We're a few years apart in age. So in terms of kind of historical context, we're both white men in the United States. We both have virtually no hairline, though I seem to have come to peace with that in a way that maybe my brother at the New York Times has not yet. We're both opinion columnists, different publications, different styles, but you know, we're literally paid to share our opinions about things. And at that point, and we both identify as Catholic, right? But other than that, I think we have very different perspectives. And I was thinking about why is my view so very different from his on this? You know, he views this as entrapment, as imprisonment, as confining, as a mistake in the way that folks in the register and other voices online, these kind of reactionary voices have suggested. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that I'm a theologian. I mean, that's a big, not an insignificant Detail that I have a professional understanding. I've spent years and years studying not only the church's tradition and doctrine, but its historical development. And so the difference even between the lead to this conversation where we heard that quote that Father Jim Martin also shared, you know, he's not a theologian, he's the first to admit that, but John O'Malley was an eminent scholar of the Council and of the Church, and I think drawing from those sources as opposed to one's own view exclusively makes makes a big difference. The other thing I want to highlight is I really appreciated Pope Francis's remarks the other day, and I... <laughs> Like a lot of things, I sometimes roll my eyes, maybe in cynicism, but also find myself scratching my head in confusion about some of the takes that that follow from these sorts of remarks. And so what I mean by that is, you know, I, th- I agree with what you were saying, Heidi. It's not – these are not equal concerns, the so-called right and the so-called left. But I do think that – how have we gotten to this point – You know, the Second Vatican Council is neither progressive nor conservative. It is in some ways following a methodology so different, this idea of ressourcement in the French and Italian terms to, to refer to the theological and historical methodology of going back to the sources. I mean, you can't be more, quote, traditionalist than to go back to scripture and to the early church fathers and to the medieval tradition to go back to the liturgy and scripture and to the theology to basically correct these sort of accretions that have happened over the years that are just, you know, that we see codified at Trent because of historical circumstances. And I'm like, it's also not simply progressive. The aggiornamento is the updating, but that's a recognition that we are not apart from the world. As says, Spez says, you know, it's the church in the modern world. So I I just want to name this, and I'm curious, David, what you think about this, especially as an observer of all things political in the U.S. context, like, I see parallels with the culture wars in the US. I mean, there's a similarity with things that should not be politicized or should be contentious that become dragged into these identity and cultural political debates. So I'm thinking of healthcare more than a decade ago, right, when the Affordable Care Act was being presented, and it became co-opted as a pawn of political debate. And then it became, you know, this is leftist, this is communist, et cetera, et etc. It's sort of a right wing reaction. Similarly, just in the last few years around vaccines and the COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, masking, public safety, vaccination, like, how did this become kind of co opted? And I think when people talk about the Second Vatican Council or they talk about the Novus Ordo, which is ridiculous because it's not the new rite or the new order of the liturgy, it is the only, it is the standard liturgy of the church, of the Roman rite. So that's a little bit of an aside. Obviously, you can see I get worked up about this, but the language we use is telling. And I think I still don't understand how something that should have been, certainly 60 years out, understood as a reflection of the best of our tradition
0: is continued
2: to be painted this
0: way and used this upon. I mean, David, what do you think? So I've been following the comments of a Catholic economist by the name of Dr. Tony Annette. He used to work at the International Monetary Fund. He's just come out with a book called Cathonomics, and he really is going into Catholic social teaching. But over the last few days on Twitter, he's been doing these mega threads about the relationship of Catholic social teaching, the relationship of that treasure trove, to Vatican II, and also to the legacy of Pope John Paul II. I've been fascinated. He's sort of recovering a different Pope John Paul than the one that I was familiar with, saying that Pope John Paul in these sorts of situations was really not, when it came to Vatican II, a conservative, but instead he was sort of doing some interesting behind-the-scenes negotiations that really laid the groundwork. So Dr. Annette says, for Pope Francis. And I'm not sure that I fully understand all of the connections. I'm not sure that I fully agree with it. But I'm interested because I think in addition to the documents of Vatican II, we also have the legacy of Pope John Paul II really up for grabs here, and many people scrambling to sort of claim it in a similar fashion to the way that those on the right try and claim the legacy of Ronald Reagan and what he meant for the party and all of that. Like, A serious touchstone figure. And so I'm interested in the anniversary from that standpoint. I'm also interested simply because I'm a Vatican II Catholic. I I describe myself as a commonweal Catholic, a Vatican II Catholic, and I find myself continually surprised at those that want to somehow leapfrog back over the council and go to something earlier. I don't have any interest in that. I'm interested instead in finding ways to actually bring the fullness of the promise of the Second Vatican Council, into the Church. As my priest friend, Father Bruce Cinquegrani from down in Memphis, says, we still haven't fully implemented Vatican I. And so there's a lot to be said for actually trying to give Vatican II its due and not say that it's a failure or not say that it's somehow bankrupt, because we haven't seen the full fruits of it yet.
1: So I, too, have, could describe myself as a Vatican II Catholic I mentioned that I was born as the council was happening, and my entire formative years in parish life and in a school were formed by in that time that some people describe as chaos. And while it may have felt chaotic to some people, it also felt freeing and exciting and uh life-giving to a lot of other people. And I've interviewed people who are older than I am, including sisters at that time, and women especially, about how exciting the post-Vatican II time was and how much the documents of Vatican II and some of the things that they said were very formative for them about how they viewed their church. So I'm not speaking about this so much from my informed perspective as having studied some theology, I only have a master's degree, but from my own personal experience that includes the banner making that people like to make fun of and the guitar masses and all of those things, which actually I found Perfectly fine, if not encouraging, of my faith expression and my faith exploration. So, I think people who identify themselves as Vatican II Catholics tend to have been alive during that time and remember something fondly. Whereas a lot of people who think negatively about that time weren't there. They either weren't, they were either not alive yet because they're in their 20s or something, or early 30s, or They were alive, but they weren't Catholic because they were converts. And so we're sort of experiencing it, if at all, as as an outsider. So I just have a little bit of a concern about that and in the same way that my concern about people who want to leapfrog, as you said, and go back to the 1950s or before are imagining some sort of idyllic time, and they didn't have to live through it. Or if they did live through it, they lived through it as a perfect person of privilege who didn't experience the 50s or times before that is extremely difficult and negative. But that's my personal experience I'm sharing there.
0: Well, and I want to get the take of both of you because I've heard several commentators make the observation that when we look at Pope Francis, we're looking at the first pope in the history of the Church whose entire formation was post-Vatican II. So we're really seeing the first Vatican II pope in Francis, and I wonder what you two think about that claim and whether you would agree with it, expand on it, or disagree with it.
2: Well, I mean, chronologically, that's he was ordained after the council, so I guess if that's what we want to identify and that's where the marker is, then that's fine. I just want to circle back to something, Heidi, you were saying a moment ago, and just to build on that a bit, which is, again, the parallels between the kind of ecclesial polarization and the civil polar or political polarization we see as well, with an analogy between sort of the MAGA, Republicans, and some of the most reactionary Catholics. Which is this going back, make America great again, suggesting that there was some, as you say, idyllic time. And I'm thinking about what does that look like in pre Second Vatican Council Church? Is it it's a time where there was silence around clergy sexual abuse? It was a time of deep anti-Semitism. It was a time of social pressure against divorce and remarriage, including in abusive relationships. It was a time in which religious liberty was not a part of church teaching. So those conservative christians who i scream and yell about religious liberty and religious exemptions to state and federal mandates you if you want to go back in those times you do not have that to fall back on it was an anti-ecumenistic and anti-interreligious dialogue time it was a time that was really quite bad the other thing I want to highlight is the absurdity of this claim that people identify either as a Vatican II Catholic or a not Vatican II Catholic. I am a Vatican II Catholic and a Vatican I Catholic and a Trent Catholic and a, a the Third Council of Lyon. You know, you can go all the way back to Chalcedon and to Nicaea. There are 20 ecumenical councils. And if you are a Roman Catholic, you are living and have received and are shaped and formed by all of the teachings, pastoral and doctrinal, that have come from all of those councils. You don't get to pick and choose which of the last two millennia, the teachings of the highest authoritative body of the Roman church, issues that you want to take or leave. It doesn't work like that.
1: I totally agree with you, Dan, except I do recognize that people are often formed by things they experience. So, for example, I did not experience World War II or the immediate aftermath of it, but my parents did, and I know that it formed them and has shaped who they are and what they think about various things, including war. So for me, being shaped by the immediate aftermath of Vatican II has shaped me. But you're right, I'm shaped by all of the Church's teachings and history. But you know, those facts that you brought up about the time before Vatican II, those pesky facts that, that kind of belie that, that all this polarization or this wanting something that they really don't want, time without religious liberty, says that it must be about something else. And I think out of fairness and compassion to people who disagree with me and think there was something better about that time, I try to understand or try to listen and hear what it is they're really pining for or needing or missing. And sometimes I think that has to do with like a sense of the sacred, with some sense of mystery and I'm trying to be generous in my reading of things here, and also with some sort of reaction or some sort of solid ground in the face of a lot of things that are very scary. And I think the world that we live in right now, although it was also true in the post-World War II era, is very scary. And so hanging on to something that seems unchangeable could seem like comforting. I think that's right.
2: I also think there's a generational difference. I think people, Heidi, your age, David's age, my age, who I'm talking about late 30s and above, we, middle age, basically. Okay, above. I
1: just have to interrupt and be thank you so much for locking me in with you. That's so <laughs> Jeff. Just... Hey,
2: I'm going all the way up to Her Late Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. I said, let's say 39 and above. We'll throw me in and everybody older. But, you know, th- there's something very different going on with this generation. And, I see it now that for the last couple of years I've I've been predominantly teaching undergrads before that I taught for many years in Chicago seminarians and graduate st- students exclusively and there was a, something going on there as well that I want to highlight but I think when we ap- assign these kind of political reactionary labels to certain practices and interests like you were saying this desire for maybe quiet and silence rather than a lot of activity which Intuitively is not a bad thing when you think about a generation that is constantly bombarded from the time they're in the womb with all kinds of computers and tablets and media and noise. Maybe the draw to a more quiet kind of Latin mass is not a bad instinct. The question is, what comes with it? I had a conversation recently with a master's student in Texas who was talking about the various ways she's experienced a liturgy and some of these kind of polarizing dynamics. And she had said she was really grateful for the Pope's recent statement or the document some months back, really kind of of cramping down or clamping down rather on celebration of Latin mass because of its divisive ancillary politics that have been associated with that. But the liturgy and forms of worship themselves are not inherently problematic. And I'll just give two illustrations of this that outwardly would seem, depending on who's looking at this, to suggest one thing, but in practice is much, much more complicated. So in Chicago, we have these seminarians, men and women religious, who were very fond of wearing their religious habits, men and women, and some of them would wear them to class. And there would be older faculty, much, much older than me, who would be those who have lived through the Vatican II historical era, who assign certain meaning to that that means that they want to go back to these times we're talking about. And there were various reasons. One of the friars I happen to know used to say, not ironically, he said, part of it is, I'm lazy. I don't want to decide what to wear. I can get up and I can throw my habit over these clothes, and it's as simple as that. Others recognize that as a sign of corporate identity and belonging together and community and witness. But the interesting thing is a lot of those same students were the ones who were the student leaders in the social justice groups and the student activism groups and the ones who were seeking for greater representation in things like bringing down capital punishment and Black Lives Matter and these sorts of things and would march in the streets in their habits often. So I, I think those sorts of things are oftentimes conflated. The other thing that's really interesting to me being in the tri-campus area with St. Mary's and Notre Dame and Holy Cross College is this Gen Z where you have students who are incredibly socially progressive as the demographers might put it right some who identify in the lgbt community some who are activists i'm thinking of a couple students in this area who also are the most sort of devout in these kind of traditionalist liturgical practices they like quiet masses they're part of you know the rosary group and these sorts of things that seem antithetical to a lot of outside observers so i just want to complicate this too and i think that the loudest voices like in the register or an EWTN and these sorts of things are from a previous generation that want to make this very political and very polarized in a way that I think, again, I keep calling for how we need to learn from this youngest generation and people that are Heidi and David, your kids' age and their immediate kind of predecessors.
0: I love this. And I just want to say, you know, the move to make these battle lines more blurry and make these definitions more complicated rather than less complicated, I think that's exactly the right way to go. I think that as we move into the 21st century, Vatican II is going to give us new ways to think about Catholicism that don't fall into these old battle lines and old sort of team divisions. So I'm very, very grateful for what you just said there, Dan. I'm sure that we'll come back and talk about this more in episodes to come, but for right now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Please stay with us.
2: Welcome back to the Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with Heidi Schlump and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. In Illinois and in many states across the Union, early voting has already begun. As we look ahead to the coming weeks, the 2022 midterm elections are upon us. Many observers, both here in the United States and abroad, have expressed deep concerns about what this election might mean, not only for American leadership, but for the American democratic process itself. For example, in the October 11th article, the Guardian newspaper in the United Kingdom noted that, quote, in several states, Republican candidates who doubt the 2020 election results or in some cases actively work to overturn them are running for positions in which they have had tremendous influence over how votes are cast and counted. If these candidates win, there is deep concern they could use their offices to spread baseless information about election fraud and try to prevent the rightful winners of elections from being seated. unquote. In Catholic circles, there is an ongoing debate about the appropriate role of both citizens and politicians in the democratic process, with some emphasizing the importance of voters and leaders both following a strict interpretation of church teachings and their civic actions. For others in the Catholic faith, our votes and civic participation are better governed by the discernment of our individual consciences. So as Catholics ourselves, we are entering into a lively and ongoing discussion about the goals and fruits of the electoral process— David, I know, as our listeners do as well, that you pay close attention to politics. Do you share some of the concerns about this upcoming election?
0: Are you more optimistic? Are you more pessimistic? What are you? So I'm never optimistic. Never. Uh, I'm very (laughs) cynical about all these things. So I'm really fascinated by the kind of meta pieces that you mentioned there at the end of the topper for this, because of the way that we think about the role of Catholics in elections and the role of Catholics in the kind of larger civic politics of the United States. We can go all the way back to the election that brought President John F. Kennedy to be the first Catholic president here in the United States and the fear that he would be a puppet For the Vatican. And so there's always this specter haunting us that somehow we are going to vote as a block and that we will not be governed by our intellect or our consciences as we enter the ballots, as we enter the ballot box or as we enter the polls or as we do any of these sorts of things. And I really like the idea that is sort of in the air right now, moving away from a more authoritarian Catholicism to a more synodal style of Catholicism where we are more engaged in dialogue and Catholic ideas are no longer monolithic—and this is the signal that we're getting from Pope Francis and from some others at the ecclesial level— I'm really interested in what that might mean for the ability for Catholics to be civically active, and I don't know what that will look like yet, and I think that's actually a good thing, that actually I can't imagine what it's going to look like for Catholics to be involved moving forward. Now, here's the pessimism, because will we get the chance to be involved if we have an eclipse in our democratic processes? And so that's a real fear going into 2022, is we've got all of these different kind of levers being Pulled to try and shut down the possibility of people being involved in the electoral process or actually having their votes and their voices counted. And so I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I have hopes, but I also have some real fears sort of keying off of that Guardian article about what this might look like, not just in the election itself, but also in the wake of it. Because if some of these people that are being noted get put into place, they have then an operative power that can really shut down the democratic process in some ways that we may not have seen before. But I'm interested in what you two think as well.
1: Well, I guess I'll join you in my fears about the way the attacks on the democratic process have been happening over the last two years and what could potentially happen with the election of people who, I mean, they're always willing to accept the election results when they win, right? But who otherwise challenge free and fair elections and when they don't win or when their party doesn't win. And I mean... This idea that I think I lived with most of my life that when I witnessed these things happening in other countries that it could never happen here, no longer, that no longer feels like a reasonable assumption to live with. And I don't want to be too extremist or alarmist either, but I think there are plenty of warning signs and many people much smarter than I am about history the history of authoritarianism have pointed out that a lot of the warning signs are here. I'll point out when we talk about pop culture that I've been watching the Ken Burns Holocaust documentary and the lead up to the authoritarianism there in Germany. It kind of, you can't help but see a few parallels there. That said, I don't know what that means for Catholics, because as you said, David, for Catholics, we're not a block. We don't all... Vote the same, we don't all care about the same issues we don't all interpret church teaching and how it should be applied to the political sphere or to our our diverse culture in the same way, so I think it it's it continues as we've mentioned before to be divisive in our church and in our in our politics. I'll give a little preview if you are on Twitter and you follow one of our reporters, Brian Fraga, you'll notice that he was in Ohio last week he did a a full week long reporting trip where I think he logged a thousand miles driving around Ohio, talking to all kinds of people and going to events where both candidates for the Senate seat there Both J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan were speaking and I had a chance to talk to them. They're both Catholic in a very different way and a perfect sort of way to crystallize what's happening nationwide, but really show how it's happening in Ohio. So he's currently working on some pieces from that trip, and you can look for those between now and Election Day at NCR Online. But I'm afraid what he's going to be reporting is not going to be that encouraging either. And so I stand by my nervousness.
2: Yeah, I joined the the nervousness as well. I don't think I'm, I don't know. I've thought about this, especially in the last six years. Am I cynical? (laughs) You know, that's, that's the question. I think no. And David, unlike you, I'm probably actually more optimistic. I think people close to me would say that I'm more optimistic than I'm not, though I don't always feel it. And so I don't know what that's about. Maybe it's eschatological hope that I try to link to. And I think not that things will magically get better but that, that there's something more happening here. But Heidi, to your point, I think you've raised some really interesting and important observations. I mean, this notion of warning signs is really key. And I, and I keep thinking about this phrase that I understand the instinct to say, and we heard it a lot during the Trump administration, mostly from white folks, that this is not who we are. Even Joe Biden says this a lot, right? This is not what America is. And we'd see all these horrible discriminatory and violent practices and attitudes and language and people would say this, and, and the response would be from minoritized communities, historically marginalized communities, particularly those of color, but also those of, from immigrant first generation families, those who white folks who suffer from poverty and income inequality and other forms of, let's say, ableism and this sort of thing. Or I think about like the LGBTQ plus community and so many others, we can identify a bunch who aren't in Joe Biden's position, to put it kind of clearly. And I'm thinking about the fact that the United States has always been a place in which a lot of people, a lot of people who aren't often given voice or attention, are discomfited, who are threatened, who experience violence and discrimination, for whom democracy is just a bunch of words and not a reality. It's interesting you mentioned the Ken Burns documentary. I I have. We'll talk about it in the next segment, but I've got a long list of things I've been wanting to see, and that's on it. But as you were talking about that and the similarities with the United States and our current experience, I can't help but think about the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Isabel Wilkerson and her most recent book, Cast. And she it's a case study, basically, of the United States, Nazi Germany, and India. And she painstakingly, with a lot of research, makes very clear that Hitler and the Nazi regime, the Third Reich looked to the United States' history of racism, chattel slavery, and segregation as a model, as a playbook for their horrific actions and policies and views. So when we look in retrospect, and there's a lot to unpack about the U.S.'s slow engagement with that atrocity and slow move to, to be involved with World War II and the like, but I think we also need to recognize the role that we as a society have played. And and as far as I'm concerned, like here we are, 80 years later, and and the seeds of that are just starting to blossom, perhaps in our own home garden, even though those seeds were planted elsewhere first.
1: Yeah, and those point those very points are made in the documentary as well, including the anti-Semitism in the United States and the history of immigrant sentiment. So it's a highly recommended documentary for me. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to the midterms.
0: <laughs> well, and so as we look ahead to what's going on and what's happening, one of the things that I think is concerning to all three of us is the fact that a lot of the people who are in these races, and I think of JD Vance and others, have firmly planted their flags in a kind of reactionary, kind of Trumpist kind of identity. And when we think about that, It really does bring back the idea that Trump was not the cause of anything, but rather he was one of the most visible symptoms of something that has gripped our politics for a number of election cycles. And so people who still find that the way to really... Gin up a voter base is to pull hard to the right with these kind of jingoistic posturings and some actions that are really despicable. And so I'm thinking about our conversation from the last episode about Ron DeSantis down in Florida busing the migrants to various points around the country. This is not simply a single isolated political action, but it has a cynical eye towards the midterms and the way in which actions like this will make voters sort sort of be energized towards certain candidates. And I wonder what you two think about that as well.
1: Well, let me just say that I think everyone knows this, but the midterms traditionally – do not benefit the party in power, at least the party in power presidentially. So the expectation is that Republicans will do well anyway. And then, as you pointed out, David, on top of it, they're using some of these culture war issues to sort of rev people up about things. But I would also say that the left seems somewhat energized as well. Some who are for abortion rights, who are very concerned about the Dobbs decision, some who are very concerned on the other side about the busing of migrants and how inhumane that is. But what it comes down to every election, but specifically midterms, which traditionally have lower turnout, is who gets out and votes. And, you know, I think one thing that our Catholic faith does tell us is that we are to participate in the political process, that we are to care about the society and to vote our consciences and to get out and do things like vote. And additionally, to work In other ways in the political process, whether that's canvassing or working for candidates and that sort of thing. So I think at the very least, we could all agree on the importance of getting out there and voting because there's no way our democracy can represent everyone if only a small sliver of people are voting.
2: That's right. And I think we have ecclesiastical teaching that supports this, right? Both at the universal magisterial level with Pope Francis, both in Laudato Si and Fratelli Tutti, picking up on the call to pragmatic action and political engagement, but also the USCCB for all of its flaws, as we often discuss on this program. One one important thing that they are in one voice always affirming every election cycle through faithful citizenship, that document, is exactly what you were just saying, Heidi, that, that we have a responsibility As fully engaged, active citizens in our society, right? And that leads me to something that we've talked about in segments on this podcast over the years, and I don't think it's ever worth passing the opportunity to remind ourselves of, which is the purpose of government. Um, whatever form it is manifested, it is always intended to promote and protect the common good. And so this is not about self-interest. It is not about majority or minority rule. It is about what is what better facilitates human flourishing across our communities and across all of those who, as Pope Francis would say, share our common home. I'm also inclined to say too, Heidi, you were talking about some of the the potential energizing of the the incumbent party, the Democratic Party in the midterm. I think it would be interesting to see how that plays out because I agree. I think there's a lot of energy around the Dobbs decision and around some of these immigration stunts, which remind me of what happened in 2018. What DeSantis and Abbott are doing is not unlike the Fox News sort of deluge of coverage of the so-called migrant caravan. Remember that? so-called impending threat in 2018 that materialized into absolutely nothing. And the day after the midterm election in November, there was almost no coverage on Fox News, similar sorts of organizations. So I think there is an effort. And it's, as David, you were saying, and we've been discussing, it's a cynical effort. It's using, as we talked about last episode, human beings as pawns, political pawns, which is, there's nothing I can think of that is more overtly against Catholic teaching and pro-life beliefs than to treat human beings as objects for personal political gain.
0: So as we're looking ahead, for many of you, voting has already started. We encourage you to be involved in the process, whether with early voting or on election day. I'm sure that we'll come back to this topic again in future episodes, but for now we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect.
1: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with Dan Horan and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Often, it seems like the world is falling apart, or at least close to it, with political and ecclesial polarization increasing, global climate change looming, the Russian invasion in Ukraine threatening nuclear war, inflation rising. And so many more issues typically on our minds, it can be overwhelming to focus exclusively on breaking news. Most of the themes we address on this podcast are challenging, urgent, and at times controversial. Many of the issues involve serious topics and matters that require research and deliberation in order for us to match the importance of the subject at hand. And we know that our regular listeners appreciate this and look forward to these dynamic discussions every other week. That said, we also know that our listeners appreciate and we enjoy when we get a little less serious from time to time and share a bit about what we are watching and reading apart from our day jobs. Every now and then on the Francis Effect podcast, we co-hosts like to step back and reflect on what we've been watching, reading, and doing in terms of engaging popular culture. It's a little break for all of us. So Dan, let's start with you. What have you been taking in lately from among the many TV shows, movies, books, and other options in pop culture today?
2: Okay. All right. I love this. So I'm going to propose something to the three of us that maybe we do this in categories and move from one to another because I think we'll get going and on so many interesting topics and flow from one to another. So here are the four I'm going to propose. Maybe we can add a fifth miscellanea. Books, music, TV, movies. Maybe let's start with books. And, I, and since I'm on the spot here, I'll begin. That I, I'm an academic. I read and literally write books for a living. And so oftentimes it can be difficult for me to find time to read things for pleasure or for personal enrichment or something that I don't have to read for a research project or to prep for class or something like that. But since the last season, there have been a couple of things that I've turned to that I've really appreciated. I've shared on the podcast before, I'm not a big novel reader. I need something to get me. And and I read a novel that I really enjoyed, and I recommended to a number of people, and I've heard from them that they've enjoyed too. And this is a novel called Falling by T.J. Newman, who is a former flight attendant who wrote this book apparently while traveling these kind of red-eye long-haul flights. It's a thriller. It's gripping. It's enjoyable for people who fly as often as I do. I did think it was uh, maybe a little ironic uh, to read it as I was on flights, but I don't mind that. I don't get scared by flight-related things. So it's really good. I also read around the same time in the last couple of months, Happy-Go-Lucky, David Sedaris' most recent collection of essays. And of course, I'm a big Sedaris fan. He's very funny, but it's also a very personal collection of essays in the wake of his father's death. And uh, his father was a very complicated and not always nice person. More recently, one of my philosophy colleagues here at St. Mary's College is running a philosophy reading group in which she proposed we read Thomas Merton's essay collection, Raids on the Unspeakable, which is one of my favorites. So reading that again, kind of in this new vein and sharing insights with colleagues in this monthly group has been really exciting. And so two more, one, one that's on my list that I just downloaded onto my Kindle today <laughs> with an eye toward fall break. And the other is a graphic novel, which I don't often read much of, but I was really intrigued a few months ago when the New York Times was talking about the push in the politicization of book bans and curricula at the primary and secondary levels in different districts around the country. And one, they did a profile of the author, I hope I'm pronouncing this person's name, Maya Kababi, who wrote a graphic novel titled "Gender Queer" about their own experience. And despite the kind of contestation that this is, no pun intended, graphic in a graphic novel. It is, I thought, very well done. It's very moving. It was compellingly written. It's autobiographical. It's memoiristic. And, and I thought it was excellent. So I want to give a shout out to that. And the one book that is on my list I've been awaiting like so many people, and I might hate myself for reading it, but nevertheless, I can't stop myself, which is the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Maggie Haberman's new book on Donald Trump, Confidence Man. So... Getting ready to virtually crack open that 600 page tome. And if it's a good thing I don't have any more hair on my head, or else I'd be pulling it out. What are you two, uh, book wise? What's on your nightstand table or in your hands? Yeah.
1: Well, like you, I do a little too much reading as part of my day job. So I do have a pile of books that I've been, that are in the religion and theology sphere that I've been looking to read. The one at the top of my list, and I haven't started it yet, is the one from Robert Ellsberg, in which he talks about his letter writing with Sister Wendy Beckett, who used to have the show about art on PBS. And we have an excerpt from an essay that Robert wrote about that, and it seems like it'd be really good. Have you already started it, Dan?
2: I read it in advance. I wrote a blurb for it. But um, just a shout out to say that on December 6th, sign up at the Center for Spirituality. Uh, Robert's going to be here to talk about the book and the program. The book program will be live streamed, that lecture. So David, I'm sure, can have that link in our show notes. Sorry, Heidi. Go ahead. Oh, awesome.
1: It's a
0: great It's I will. And also, we interviewed him on Things Not Seen. So I'll link to all of this in the show notes. Oh,
1: look at the nice shout out he's getting from all three of us. On the novel side, I could use some recommendations. I've been reading some things from my bookshelf from some of my favorite authors. I was on like a little bit of a Isabel Allende kick over the summer, and I read, I had not read like House of the Spirits, even some of her kind of found her bigger books, but I read a couple others from her over the summer, and then I pulled out my my favorite author is Ann Tyler and I pulled out I think it was one of her first books that I had not read now and now the name of course is escaping me. But I could use a good recommendation. I heard about that book Falling. I think the author was interviewed on Fresh Air and I determined that I'm not a I don't have a big fear of flying, but I'm not even sure I want to read that not on plane. <laughs> so I don't know, I need more recommendations. David, do you have any novel recommendations for me?
0: Unfortunately, I do not. I read very little fiction and So I unfortunately don't have anything to say on that front right now. My wife cycles regularly through the books by Haim Potok, so The Chosen, and My Name is Asher Lev, and books like that. So if you're looking for something that's sort of perennial, it's not a new set of books, but those books are wonderful, and I recommend them both to you and to our listeners. Lately, I've been reading some short books. I've been reading Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, which is a book that really is kind of blowing my mind in some ways, just the I have a couple of friends here in Chicago that are reading that book as well, and we get together every once in a while and talk about it. And just the clarity of the analysis and how Fisher, who unfortunately passed away but was able to really kind of look at large-scale events and really synthesize them. It's a short book, but every chapter I have – marked up and I go back to and I'm thinking about. I'm reading it very slowly, which is something that I do very rarely with books. And so that's been one piece that has been really enjoyable for me. The other is I've been going back and reading a bunch of essays by Niels Bohr, who was a Danish physicist in the early 20th century and one of my favorite scientists and thinkers. Longtime listeners will know that for fun, I go and I read physics documents and technical documents from the Manhattan Project and things like that. So going back and reading these essays by Niels Bohr has been a real joy for me, in part because he is using his analysis of quantum physics to talk about how we talk about truth, which is a subject that is of constant interest to me. And so I would have loved to have met this man and had a chance to talk to him because every single sort of piece of writing that I've encountered from him just really makes me stop and reconsider things. But also because of his moral actions in the Second World War, he prevailed upon various members of European governments to help to save Jewish people. And so just on a number of levels, I commend to you the writings and the thought and the life of Niels Bohr. So those are two sets of readings that have been on my radar lately. And I, unfortunately, like I said, I read a lot of books for the show I do, Things Not Seen, but I read them very fast, and I absorb them, and then I have really great conversations about them, and then they kind of disappear from my memory. So if anyone wants to know about any books I've read lately, go listen to Things Not Seen, because (laughs) my best possible thoughts about any of those books happen in the moment when I'm talking with their authors. That's great. Okay, let's switch gears now. Music. I'll be glad to go first on this one. So I love music. Everybody knows that about me. And every once in a while, I'll be puttering around on YouTube or I'll be putting around on Spotify and the algorithm will kick something new into my space that I have never encountered before and so lately I have really been grooving on a rap supergroup by the name of Deltron 3030 and this the main vocalist in this is Del the Funky Homo Sapien this is an old group it's an old album but I had never heard it before but the style of rap is very much in the same genre as Dr. Octagon and MF Doom, sort of laid back rap that's really kind of Dadaist in the way that it deals with subject matter. I really am just loving it. And in particular, there's a track from Deltron 3030 called Virus that has been on constant rotation with me lately. And so that's the main thing that I've been listening to is when I'm not listening to lectures and other stuff on YouTube to kind of keep my brain firing, I'm listening to Deltron 3030. Deltron 3030.
1: I might have mentioned this. I can't remember if I did last last season or in our last episode, but our family experienced a death, a tragic death in the family in the spring. And one of the things that's been really hard for me personally in my grief is listening to music. So music is so emotional and can bring back so many memories and emotions. And so... I have been avoiding music a lot, but I think I did talk in our initial episode about how I had seen a couple concerts and that was kind of my way back into music. So I'm Not somebody who experiments with the kinds of music that you do, David. I tend to listen to a lot of classics that I used to like. But what I've been on a little bit of a kick in the last couple days or week is I saw, belatedly, unfortunately, that Dar Williams was here in Chicago doing a concert. And I missed it. I had seen her in concert when I was younger. And I used to be a huge Dar Williams fan. So Mm -hmm. she's kind of a folk kind of musician and a lot of social justice themes in her music. And so I kind of hauled out some of my old CDs and was actually listening to them the last couple of days. So shout out to any other Dar Williams fans out there. What about you, Dan?
2: So I don't even know where to begin. This seems so kind of cliche because I don't think I exhibit a sort of hipster vibe, which because it's really not at all part of my persona. But when you start piling up some of my interests and certainly posts. During and post pandemic, interests of moving more and more to analog spaces, including photography, which was I've written about in an NCR and goes back to my earliest days learning photography. That I was gifted by a friend for Christmas, a little record player. And so I've actually been moving back into vinyl. And I remember when Neil Young, a few years ago, came out with this new system, which would be right up David's alley, I'm sure you at least were aware of this. He was so frustrated with the compression of digital music into these tiny little packages where it flattens out basically the dynamism of the sound. And I've heard people talk about going back either to original presses of vinyl or even some of the new ones experiencing more dynamism in the music. And so it was really nice to get this gift and I've I've been going back to classics. This is the other thing too that's it's not an ironic hipster love of 50s, 60s, and 70s music, but I really do. And so I've been listening to a lot of The Beatles, again, of Creedence Clearwater Revival of Patti Smith. And actually, the album that I've been listening to, both electronically when I travel, but in, in record form, is Paul Simon's Graceland. And part of that is just connecting me in some ways through that music, which I've always loved. I love Simon. I love Simon and Garfunkel. But I have I feel a certain connection to that inspiration of his, I guess it was album of the year when it came out back in the day with his experience of music in South Africa and I had just spent 6 weeks there myself so that's been my sort of treat is going back into the analog music, and and I, Neil Young is not wrong. I mean, it is the sound is just so different. And as somebody who is an amateur musician, I can appreciate elements certainly of of the recordings that are lost in the compression. You know, when well, now when I listen to an MP3 or I listen to something on my phone or on earbuds, it just sounds so flat to me. So, anyways, a nerding out and a and a kind of a retro thing. Some of my friends think I'm a weirdo because. because. Because I really do. I love listening to some of this music from the 60s and 70s. It's always warmed my heart. And as we shared before, and Heidi was on the other side of the stadium at Notre Dame for the Billy Joel concert. I mean, I know every single one of those songs by heart too. So I don't know, maybe I was born in the wrong era, or I just, uh, I'm just a weirdo. I'm not a typical millennial or young Gen Xer. Okay, TV. This is the big one. All right. What are you all watching?
1: Well, I can go first. First, I thought people were going to make fun of me because I was hauling out a CD and then you go to vinyl. I love that. <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, and I'll just say this briefly, I was while I was sick, I had a couple days where I was feeling well enough to watch TV and I watched parts one and two. So I have one one episode left of the Ken Burns Holocaust documentary on PBS, which has as its focus. So if you think you've already seen documentaries on the Holocaust before, and you can skip this one, just to point out that this one has as its focus is kind of the U.S. reaction, especially in terms of whether to accept Jewish refugees or not during the war. And then a little bit late, but we are kind of slow over here in the Schlumpf Butler household. My husband and I started watching The Bear, which is the show that about the the beef restaurant in Chicago that Chicagoans love to debate about whether it's the greatest show or whether it's inaccurate. The episode we watched the other night, the guy was talking about taking the Kennedy to Naperville, and I immediately saw that was incorrect because, of course, you don't take the Kennedy. That's a long way to the Naperville. But but it's a good show. It's very well done. But I'm finding it a little bit depressing, and the const- it makes me anxious to watch it because there's so much anxiety between the various characters. But they're really growing on me. We're about halfway in, I think. What are you guys watching? So – we
0: are going back. My wife and I have done a deep dive into the West Wing. This is probably the fifth time that we're watching it through, and we're right now at the end of the fourth season. And we've been doing this in conjunction with a podcast that a couple of the, of the cast members put together called the West Wing Weekly. So we started out, we were listening to the West Wing Weekly podcast, and then that made us nostalgic. We went back into the show, and what amazes me is that even now, having seen it four or five times through, I'm finding new character arcs and new nuances that I hadn't noticed on earlier viewings. So it's an amazing show, and one that is well worth, if you've never seen it, it's worth your time. It takes a lot of time to get through all of it, but it, it bears up with close viewing, just amazing storytelling. And then we're also going back... As 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 a family, so my children in particular have been asking for shows that have good LGBTQ plus representation. So we're going through and we're watching a show called Shit's Creek. And we, my wife and I have already watched it all the way through. And now we're going through and we're watching it with the kids. And one thing that I'm realizing as well is I didn't like the show for most of the time that I watched it when I watched it through the first time until I got to the last couple of seasons. And I saw the character arc all kind of move in the directions that they were finally settling on and all that. Now that I'm going back, I see the seeds of those character arcs and I appreciate them differently. But I was really put off by just how nasty and brutish the characters were in the first couple of seasons. But again if you have the time, I can't recommend the show highly enough. It's one of the most wholesome shows I've ever seen just in terms of how it treats humans who are in bad ways, learning to be kind and gentle with one another. And it's really worth the investment of your time. So those are the two things that have really been on our radar the last few months.
2: I feel like now I can start saying, ooh, David, in the way that <laughs> <laughs> his sister does on Schitt's Creek. I love Schitt's Creek. I think it's, a, it, I agree tell. with everything you said. It's a good one, sort of like uh, NBC's The Office, You can, or like Parks and Rec or 30 Rock. You can go back and watch one episode and it'll lift the spirits. So I, I think that's fantastic. The LGBTQ representation, especially for younger audiences, reminds me of a Hulu TV series that, that I might recommend along those lines. It's inspired by a movie that was based on a book, I believe it was a novel some years back called Love, Simon, and Hulu show is called Love, Victor. And it takes place, it centers around a high school student who is coming to accept his own sexual orientation and identity. In the Love, Victor TV series, he's a Latino young man whose parents are Hispanic and Catholic. And so there's kind of religious questions and pressures and I think fairly well done and kind of a sweet show as well. So I thought that was pretty good. In terms of things I've been watching this summer, I, like so many people, was sucked back into the world of Stranger Things with the two-part most recent season, including the weird sort of chopped up pseudo movies that were in the last half of the most recent season. And like many viewers and fans of Stranger Things, I cannot wait for the next one to come out. sounds like it's going to be a while. So that's a bit frustrating. I also saw the second season of Only Murders in This Building, which I know I have a lot of friends. I see Heidi is really celebrating that. That was enjoyable. I really like that. There's a whole bunch of things that I have in queue, including the Star Wars Andor series, the Rings of Power, the House of the Dragon, like all these things that I'm interested in watching, including Ken Burns documentary. It's of a very different genre. But I have to say that I think for all of my vinyl music listening, I've become a, a product as well when it comes to TV viewing, that I like to watch one show at a time. And even if I'm not going to binge it nonstop, I don't like the idea. I don't read many books at once. I don't like the idea of having like 10 shows, one episode at a time to keep track of everything. It's just a little much. So so I have those sort of on the back burner. Once all the episodes are out, I will move to them and catch up. I'll just say one show that I was totally surprised by. I kind of started watching it, I think while traveling on a lark which was the show called Yellow Jackets on Showtime. And it's about, Heidi, this is again a plane-related thing, at least in its origin, which is a team of girl high school soccer players who are going to the national championships in the 90s. Their plane crashes, and for a year and a half or so, they have to survive in the woods. And it takes place between the modern day, so clearly at least some of them survive, their modern lives, and flashbacks Back to real time when that survival experience in the crash happened when they were teenagers. And I've heard it described before as, you know, what would it be like if there was Lord of the Flies, but it was all young women, it was all girls and not boys. Like, what would this look like? So I found it very captivating. I have lots of questions. I'm waiting to see what the next season brings, basically.
1: It's interesting what you said, Dan, about watching one show at a time. Here in our house, I always have a show that I'm watching by myself and then one I'm watching with my husband. So we don't don't cheat on each other and watch it unless (laughs) we're together and both have the night free. But it's so different to how we grew up watching shows because, of course, we used to have to wait for a week or longer for the episodes to come out.
0: And we're not talking about this, but I also want to give a shout out to kind of experimental series on non-television platforms. And so in particular, I've really been doing a close watch on a series that is done by a young producer by the name of Kane Pixels on YouTube called The Back Rooms. And it's analog horror it's hard to describe. It's science fiction. It's kind of in the same vein as Lost in some ways about kind of people that get pulled into a dimension or into a space that they can't quite comprehend. There's a lot of mystery involved, so I've got a I've got a shout-out for that internet horror as well. So good spooky stuff for the Halloween season.
2: And maybe keeping with this plane analogy, landing the plane with movies. What, if any, movies have you seen Have you been back to the theaters? That's a question somebody asked me recently.
0: I haven't. I still am not really comfortable going into confined spaces for long periods of time. We have watched a few movies lately. The most recent one that comes to mind is The Batman. And that was an interesting movie that I think is worth your time if you are into superhero films. I really enjoyed it. It's a lot. It's like three hours, but it's very well done, both from a story standpoint, but also just from the cinematography, a really interesting film to watch.
1: So I too have not been back to the movie theaters, and we don't watch a lot of movies in this house, in part because we don't have that big blocks of time like that. But I did sort of rope my daughter into watching some movies with me this past weekend, and neither she nor I are scary movie watchers. So I know this time of year, people kind of get into the horror or the slasher or whatever kind of movies, and she and I are not into that. But Disney Plus gave us the opportunity to watch a Halloween-themed movie, actually Movies, Hocus Pocus 1 and Hocus Pocus 2. So we did a marathon on whatever day it was, Saturday or Sunday, and I found them delightful. I mean, I didn't find a whole lot of deeper meaning in them, but I found them enjoyable to watch. And certainly quite a difference between the portrayal of the 90s and of the first one, and had to explain a few things to my daughter about (laughs) what was going on there. And then Hocus Pocus 2 actually does make fun and has some references back to to Hocus Pocus 1. So I, I recommend that.
2: That reminds me, I mean, my brothers and I watched Hocus Pocus in the 90s as kids and tweens. And so I forgot that a sequel has come out. So that might be something to check out. David, I saw the Batman as well. And I thought that it was also very interesting. I have felt for a long time with that story arc that I think Christopher Nolan did the best job. And I'm kind of happy with that trilogy. But, but I thought it was good. It was interesting. Most of the time, as you're saying, Heidi, I don't have long chunks kind of during the week or when I'm home. So it's usually when I'm 30,000 feet in the air. And in one movie that I watched recently, I was kind of, I wasn't seeking to watch it. I also, by the way, the third person in this conversation, I've not been back to a movie theater. So I haven't been there yet. But there are some movies out that are only now playing in movie theaters. I think the production companies are trying to move us back into that space. So they're not letting everything be streamed right away anymore. So we'll see how long that plays out. But I was really surprised. I ended up watching Top Gun Maverick on a flight in the last couple of weeks and saw the original Top Gun whatever, back in the 90s, I guess it came out in the 80s, but whatever. That's kind of my attitude is like, whatever. And so you're looking through things, you know, the airplane, they give you on their app, these different options. And at this point, I had seen mostly everything or anything I was interested in. I said, people have been raving about this. Let me take a look. And I have to say it was pretty good. I was surprised. So I'm not a huge Tom Cruise fan. It's kind of amazing that he's still kind of going at it. But I I thought it was well done. And I was actually kind of impressed by Val Kilmer, who's suffered a lot of medical issues and has struggled a lot in recent years makes an appearance. And I thought that was very moving in its own right. So that's basically it for me when it comes to movies. And I know we've been going a bit long on this section. So I hope that our listeners appreciate us sharing just a little bit. You get a glimpse behind the uh, the curtain into our living room TV screens or tablets or what have you. and. We always love to hear what you are all listening to, reading, and uh, watching. So feel free to let us know on social media or what you think, or if you have suggestions for us, that's always good to share with the broader community. And uh, I think that's about it for this week. We will be back into your ears in two weeks' time. Until then, we'll keep you all in prayer and wishing you all the best.
0: The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com/francisfxpod. Again, that's patreon.com/francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis the letters F and X in the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com, and if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E F F E C T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have seasons worth of episodes going back into history. We hope that you listen to all of them, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening.